Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Today, we're going to be discussing a 27-year-old woman with opioid dependence and pregnancy. For those of you following along in the book, this is Case 9 on page 59 of the Beyond the Pearls Obstetrics and Gynecology. The case was written by Dr. Kylie Fowler. At the time, she was a fellow in pediatric and adolescent gynecology at the Department of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology at MedStar Washington Hospital Center and Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. So let's go to our patient. The patient's a 27-year-old G2P1001 woman at 25 weeks gestational age who presents to obstetrical triage with symptoms of restlessness, tremors, nausea, and diarrhea for the past 36 hours. She has a history of opioid abuse, with her last use approximately 24 hours ago. So why is it so important to screen for opioid abuse in pregnancy? Substance use in pregnancy has a significant impact on the health of mothers and the infants, as well as an extensive implications for community public health. In the previous decade, maternal opioid use has increased dramatically from 1.19 per 1,000 births in 2000 to 5.77 per 1,000 births in 2009. So opioid abuse in pregnancy is associated with poor obstetrical outcomes. That includes fetal demise, intrauterine growth restriction, preterm birth, and placental abruption, as well as neonatal abstinence syndrome, or what we'll refer to as NAS, N-A-S. Opioid abuse might take the form of illicit drug use, or it could be non-medical use of opioid-containing pain medication. Use of other illicit substances in addition to opioid use can increase the severity of these health adverse outcomes. So what's a validated method to screen for substance abuse in pregnancy? Pregnancy provides a unique opportunity to screen and treat for substance abuse. Women have more frequent contact with healthcare during pregnancy, and they have increased opportunity to maintain treatment for substance abuse. The 4Ps plus C is a validated substance abuse screening tool for use in pregnancy. So what is the 4Ps plus C? There's 4Ps, parents, partner, past, and pregnancy. Regarding parents, you ask, do either of your parents ever have a problem with alcohol or drugs? The partner, does your partner have a problem with alcohol or drugs? The past, have you ever personally drunk beer, wine, liquor, used illicit substances? Pregnancy, in the past month before you knew you were pregnant, how many cigarettes did you smoke? Or in the a month before you knew you were pregnant, how many beers, how much wine, how much drugs did you use? So any question resulting in a positive answer to the 4Ps plus C should prompt a more formal and complete assessment of substance use. The last two questions, the past, personal history, and the pregnancy, have the highest positive predictive value for detecting illicit substance use in this particular population. A little clinical pearl. Tobacco use. Tobacco use is really common in opioid-dependent women. Tobacco use is an independent risk factor for interuterine growth restriction, preterm birth, and fetal death all on its own. All pregnant women with tobacco use disorders should be assessed for their willingness to quit at each prenatal visit through the use of motivational interviewing. If they express the desire to quit, smoking cessation resources should be provided with regular follow-up to track progress. So, when a pregnant woman presents with concern for opiate withdrawal, do you need to know what about her history? Because opioid abuse can take a lot of different forms with different implications for management and treatment, 
it's very important to gain a complete drug use history. Heroin is a rapid-acting opioid and is the most highly addictive opioid. Patients who use heroin may have severe withdrawal symptoms within four to six hours of their last use. Heroin, of course, can be injected, smoked, or nasally inhaled. Injection drug use is associated with a very high prevalence of bloodborne infections because of the needle use. So that includes hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. Intravenous injection can also result in severe infections with bacteria, such as bacterial endocarditis or sepsis. Use of narcotic pain medication, either obtained through prescription or through a legal drug sale, will have a different implication for withdrawal and treatment. For example, methadone, long-acting opioid that's often sold as a street drug. It has a half-life between 22 to 24 hours methadone, with that withdrawal occurring approximately 24 to 36 hours after last use. Therefore, specific opioid used, method of use, and timing of the last use is going to be elicited if you're suspecting withdrawal or intoxication. So use of additional substances, in addition to the opioid, such as alcohol, tobacco, other illicit drugs, also increases the risk of adverse neonatal and pregnancy outcomes. Therefore, patients should be questioned about all substances used, whether illicit or prescription drug misuse. So a little basic science pearl. The analgesic properties of opioids are primarily the result of their interaction with the MU, MU, opioid receptor. This receptor is in the G protein couple receptor family. Interaction with the MU opioid receptor induces cyclic AMP or CAMP as a secondary messenger within the cell. Alterations in the levels of CAMP within cells after prolonged exposure to opioids can induce a lot of cellular changes that are responsible for that opioid tolerance and physical dependence. In addition, when you're asking patients questions, you should also obtain that complete obstetrical history for both current and previous pregnancies, and a complete gynecologic history like past medical history, past surgical history, family and social history, what medications they're taking that are prescribed, allergies, and a complete review of systems. The social history is of specific value as illicit drug use and addiction places the patient at a lot of risk for homelessness, high-risk activities such as prostitution, theft, and exposure to violence, either as the person uh, producing the violence or as a victim of violence. So let's go back to our patient. This patient reports a long history of heroin use. She started at age 18. She primarily uses IV injection. Her last heroin use was approximately 48 hours ago. In an attempt to self-alleviate her withdrawal, she took about 30 mgs of methadone obtained from a friend approximately 24 hours ago. She denies use of any other illicit substances, although she does smoke four to five cigarettes a day. She reports two previous prenatal visits in this pregnancy. Her estimated day delivery is based on a 20-week ultrasound that demonstrated normal fetal anatomy and a posterior placenta. Her obstetrical history includes one previous pregnancy three years ago, resulting in a term vaginal delivery of a female infant. This pregnancy was also complicated by opioid abuse and maintained uh, on a methadone therapy at that pregnancy. She reports irregular menses and an unknown last menstrual period. She denies history of sexually transmitted infections in the past and is unsure of the date of her last pap test. Her past medical history is significant for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and depression. She's had no previous surgeries. She takes no medications and reports an allergy to penicillin resulting in a rash. Her family history is negative. Her social history reveals that she's currently living with her grandmother and is unemployed. Her daughter is being raised by her daughter's father, and she has visitation rights on the weekends. She has previously engaged in prostitution to assist in heroin acquisition, 
but states uh, consistent condom use. Her review of systems is positive for diffuse muscle and joint aches, mild rhinorrhea, nausea without emesis, diarrhea, and decreased sleep due to increased anxiety. She denies fevers, chills, chest pains, shortness of breath, loss of amniotic fluid from the vagina, contractions, or vaginal bleeding. So what are some important components of the physical exam for pregnant patients presented with opioid withdrawal? All pregnant patients presented to obstetrical triage units should have a complete set of vital signs and, of course, for women with a gestational age over 24 weeks, a non-stress test or an NST should be performed. In addition to a complete physical exam, patients presenting for opioid withdrawal should have a clinical opiate withdrawal scale, or the COWS, C-O-W-S, performed to assess for severity of withdrawal. So let's go to the COWS. Let's uh, talk a little bit about how that looks. The COWS um, has a reason for this assessment that you can free write in. It asks you to put in the resting pulse rate and then gives you a score based on the pulse rate measured after the patient is lying or sitting. It also has you give a score based on sweating, restlessness, pupil size, bone or joint aches, GI upset over the last half hour, tremor observed on outstretched hands, yawning, anxiety, irritability, and then it generates a score from this total score of all 11 uh, items. So scores 5 to 12 are considered mild, 13 to 24 moderate, and 25 to 36 moderately severe. A score more than 36 is severe withdrawal, just so you're aware. So we do a cow's assessment on this patient. Her vital signs reveal a blood pressure of 132 over 78 milligrams mercury, heart rate of 116 per minute, Respiratory rate of 22 per minute and a temperature of 37.4 Celsius. She's resting in bed, no apparent distress. Her face does appear flushed with moderately dilated pupils, no noticeable rhinorrhea, and no yawning. Her heart has regular rhythm, mild tachycardia, no murmurs. Lungs are clear to auscultation, abdomen is soft, non-tender, and gravid, and her fundal height measures 25 centimeters. Extremities are warm and well-perfused. However, her upper extremities show bilateral track marks from previous injection. When asked to extend her outstretched hands, you notice a mild bilateral tremor. Skin was without rash or lesions and no noticeable piloerection. Her fetal non-stress test reveals a baseline fetal heart rate of 155 per minute with moderate variability and 10 by 10 accelerations and no decelerations. Her tochometer is without contractions. So based on this history and physical exam, let's look at her cow score. Using the cows, you calculate that her heart rate gives her two points, her notable flushing gives her two points, reported restlessness, but able to sit still gives her a point, pupils with moderate dilation two, nasal stuffiness one, reported nausea and loose stool in the past half hour is two, slight observable tremor in those outstretched hands is two points. She doesn't have any yawning, so that's a zero points. Patient has, though, increased irritability and anxiety, which she gets one point. And there's no notable erection to the skin. That's zero points. You add these together, she gets 13 points, which, remember, is indicating moderate withdrawal. That's in the 13 to 24 range. And it's right on the bottom of the moderate range. What are the goals of treatment for opioid dependency and pregnancy? So what we want to get to is the comprehensive and multidisciplinary uh, treatment for this patient. Her initial treatment is going to be focused on reducing acute episodes of withdrawal, often through the use of opioid replacement. Opioid replacement includes methadone or buprenorphine. Opioid replacement is also associated with improved compliance with regular prenatal care and decreased high-risk behaviors associated with drug uh, seeking. So that's prostitution, violence, stealing, etc. 
Comprehensive treatment includes opioid maintenance therapy and behavioral health treatment of addiction. And also you want to treat any co-occurring mental health disorders, as well as screening and treatment for other significant health concerns, such as infectious diseases. And we want to improve the long-term health for both mother and infant through this care and treatment. So what are the available options for opioid replacement therapy for pregnant women who are opioid dependent? Methadone is the recommended first line for pregnant women with opioid dependence, and it has a demonstrated efficacy since approximately the 1970s. So methadone is a full mu-opioid agonist distributed in federally approved substance abuse treatment clinics daily. There are many important pharmacokinetic aspects of methadone and its use in pregnancy. So a little clinical pearl, the half-life of methadone decreases from 22 to 24 hours to approximately 8.1 hours in pregnancy because of the physiological changes of pregnancy. Therefore, methadone users in pregnancy need close monitoring and dose adjustment sometimes changing to twice daily dosing as necessary. Additionally, methadone is known to interact with several different medications. That includes anti-epileptics, antiretrovirals, and rifampin. Methadone doses are initiated about 10 to 13 milligrams per day with doses increasing based on withdrawal assessment. The NAS is a common complication of treatment, so that's the neonatal abstinence syndrome. However, the dose of methadone does not appear to impact the severity of NAS in the infant. So let's go to buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, in contrast, is a partial mu-opioid agonist as opposed to a full one like methadone. And it's also used in the treatment of opioid dependence. It can be prescribed in the office setting by physicians who've been trained and obtained specific credentialing for its outpatient use. While there is less long-term data on its use in pregnancy at the writing of this book, There was a lot of emerging evidence at the time of this writing and a lot since that suggests uh, that there's some advantages to buprenorphine in pregnancy. In addition to the convenience of outpatient treatment without uh, the licensed program visits, buprenorphine has fewer drug interactions and a decreased risk of overdose because it's a partial agonist, right? Not a full one. Additionally, it's been associated with less severe neonatal abstinence syndrome or NAS when compared to methadone. Because it's a partial agonist, It can also precipitate withdrawal because it's only blocking half the receptors. Disadvantage to buprenorphine include more difficult treatment initiation with that potential for withdrawal, lack of long-term childhood outcomes data because we haven't followed the infants of buprenorphine-treated mothers uh, for very long, and an increased patient dropout rate, as well as potential increase in medication diversion. In other words, buprenorphine might be sold more on the street. A third option for treatment of opioid dependence in pregnancy is inpatient supervised withdrawal. So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology doesn't recommend inpatient supervised withdrawal as a first-line treatment, secondary to very high relapse rates with this treatment. However, inpatient detoxification can be made available to women who express intent. So what is neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS? NAS is characterized by hyperactivity of the central nervous system with accompanying dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system in infants that are born to opioid-dependent mothers. Infants and NAS may experience uh, irritability, diarrhea, feeding difficulties, seizures, failure to thrive, and even death if it's left totally untreated. Treatment of infants with NAS often involves prolonged hospital stay with careful opioid-based pharmacologic treatment and weeding protocols. So how should we counsel this pregnant woman with opioid dependence who would like to begin opioid maintenance therapy. 
Opioid-dependent pregnant women should be offered all their options for opioid maintenance, as well as detoxification. The patient should be asked about her experiences and sexes with previous opioid maintenance therapy or treatment. She should be counseled on methadone as the current first-line therapy and the one with the most data available on its pregnancy use. Distribution of methadone in licensed clinics on a daily basis can be reviewed and information on available clinics made uh, to the patient. When methadone is prescribed in specific outpatient licensed clinics by addiction specialists, the patient should know that her obstetrics providers will continue to provide comprehensive care for all the facets of her routine pregnancy, in addition to coordinating any additional care she might need for the addiction treatment. Providers should engage in an open discussion of NAS, neonatal withdrawal syndrome, and its association in any form of opioid use in pregnancy, including maintenance therapy. Patients should be offered the opportunity to meet with neonatal providers who can thoroughly counsel them on the expectations for the infant following delivery. In regards to buprenorphine, patients should be counseled on its distribution by a licensed provider, and a list of available providers should be given to the patient if you're able to provide this medication or if you're not able to provide it yourself. The limited long-term data regarding its use in pregnancy should be discussed. It's relatively limited, but it's increasing all the time. Providers should review the potential for induced withdrawal upon buprenorphine initiation. Providers should also discuss that emerging evidence that buprenorphine might have a less decreased severity of NAS. Patients should be advised that any opioid maintenance treatment will require very close follow-up and routine drug screening. Patients who would like to undergo supervised detoxification as an inpatient should be counseled. It's associated with very high rates of relapse and often therefore requires a prolonged hospital stay. That can become logistically or financially difficult. However, this option is associated with the lowest rates of neonatal abstinence syndrome because you're not replacing any opioids. So let's go back to our patient. Following comprehensive counseling, your patient decides she'd like to initiate methadone therapy, and she successfully maintained on this treatment as she was in her prior pregnancy. So what additional testing should you perform prior to initiating methadone therapy in this patient? If not already performed as part of her prenatal care, testing should be performed for bloodborne infections. That includes hepatitis B, C, and HIV. Because she's engaged in high-risk sexual behavior, complete SDI testing should be performed. You should verify that all the routine prenatal testing is up to date. Patients undergoing induction of opioid maintenance therapy also should have a baseline urine drug screen performed to evaluate for polysubstance use that might impact treatment or other health risks. Additionally, because methadone is associated with abnormalities of cardiac conduction, prolongation of QTC interval being the most common, a baseline EKG should be attained. So our patient previously had routine prenatal care screening labs performed and records are obtained. Uh, You provide additional hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and HIV testing, which is negative, fortunately. Complete STI testing is positive for chlamydia and single-dose azithromycin treatment is provided for her. Urine drug screen is positive for long and short-acting opioids, but no other substances. EKG reveals sinus tachycardia, but no other anomalies for her. So how should methadone opioid replacement be initiated? Initial therapy is on an inpatient or outpatient basis. Maternal severity of withdrawal, gestational age of the fetus, fetal monitoring, and availability of federally licensed outpatient methadone clinics are all factors in this decision, of course. Initial doses are typically between 10 and 30 milligrams with titration based on withdrawal symptoms as documented by that COWS assessment that we talked about earlier. Doses that do not adequately control withdrawal symptoms and cravings are associated with increased use of illicit opioids 
and therefore associated with high-risk behavior. EKG monitoring should be repeated with each dose increase, so every change, and after steady state has been reached on final maximum dosing. Additional monitoring, such as routine repeated urine drug screens, will vary based on the protocol of the individually licensed clinics. So after thorough counseling, your patient decides on outpatient methadone initiation. You provide her with an initial dose of 30 milligrams of methadone while in the obstetrical triage unit. She elects to continue methadone treatment at the clinic she attended previously in her prior pregnancy. You give her a referral for this clinic and arrange an appointment the following morning. So what additional care will your patient need throughout her pregnancy? While there's no specific data for antenatal monitoring with this particular patient population, consideration needs to be given for growth ultrasound evaluation every four weeks, secondary to that increased risk of intrauterine growth restriction and low birth weight infants. Additionally, twice-weekly NST with weekly amniotic fluid index can be initiated at 32 weeks of gestational age due to that increased risk of fetal death. Patients presenting with opioid dependence should be screened for depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. Co-occurring mental illness occurs in up to 65% of opioid-dependent women, with up to 12% reporting active suicidal thoughts. Regardless of co-occurring mental illness, patients should be referred to appropriate substance abuse and comprehensive psychiatric care. So, your patient reports a history of depression and increased anxiety, as well as that history of PTSD that we elicited earlier. She's not currently experiencing active symptoms of major depression and denies active thoughts of self-harm. She feels safe with adequate support at her grandmother's home. You provide a follow-up appointment for your patient in your obstetrical outpatient clinic for following week in addition to referral to a psychiatrist. You provide her with emergency resource in case she experienced an increase in symptoms of withdrawal or worsening symptoms of depression. So let's go beyond the pearls for a second. First of all, acute pain management for opioid-dependent patients can be intimidating, even for experienced providers. Multiple studies have shown, however, that appropriate treatment of acute pain does not increase risk for relapse, but untreated pain can result in illegal opioid-seeking behavior. So opioids with mixed agonist-antagonist properties like nalbufen, eutorphanol, pentazacine should be avoided in patients on opioid replacement therapy, as this can induce the acute withdrawal. For acute pain, patients should receive scheduled non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication, avoid that use in the third trimester, but you can use it after they've given birth, routinely given narcotics should be used to achieve adequate pain control, but studies have shown that patients receiving opioid replacement therapy might need as much as 50 to 70% more dosing of acute pain treatment with narcotics. Patients should be monitored for respiratory depression, of course, when adequate pain control is obtained. As of 2016, 18 states considered substance use in pregnancy to be child abuse from a legal perspective, and three consider it grounds for involuntary civil commitment to mental health or substance abuse treatment centers. Additionally, 18 states require reporting of suspected substance use in pregnancy. So despite these laws, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists urges treatment of substance abuse as an illness and not as a moral failing. It's not supposed to be criminalized from a medical perspective. Every effort should be made to provide a safe and non-punitive environment for obstetrical care and substance abuse treatment. Providers should be aware of mandatory reporting in their state, but every effort should be made to maintain and provide care outside of the legal system, both to preserve the patient-physician relationship and also to encourage patients to seek adequate treatment 
for their mental health disorder and addiction. So let's do a case summary. A 27-year-old G2P1001 at 25 weeks of gestational age presents an acute opioid withdrawal. Her history and physical exam reveals a nine-year history of opioid dependence with primary use of IV heroin. She received methadone opioid replacement therapy in her previous pregnancy with success. She has co-occurring depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Physical exam reveals reassuring feel, monitor, and moderate opioid withdrawal by that cow's scale. She's thoroughly counseled regarding the risks and benefits of methadone and buprenorphine opioid maintenance, as well as opioid detoxification. And we put specific emphasis on the severity of NAS, neonatal abstinence syndrome, associated with each of those treatment modalities. Following counseling and appropriate screening, the patient decides to initiate opioid replacement therapy with methadone. Additional screening reveals a history of depression without active symptoms. In addition to obstetric and methadone therapy, appropriate referral is made for psychiatric care. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.